This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 8 of The Full Ratchet, where we will be discussing valuation. This is an extensive topic that affects a lot of other factors during a fundraise. I've divided up this interview into two parts, as it goes a bit longer than usual. Uh, Part two will be released next week on Wednesday. So let's jump right in. Here's my interview on valuation. Today we have Jeffrey Carter. He is co-founder of Hyde Park Angels and is raising a Midwest venture fund called West Loop Ventures. And he also has a blog over at pointsandfigures.com. Jeff, thanks so much and welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick, for having me on. So let's start out with a little background here. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through how you got into the venture space? Yeah. I uh, was a trader on the floor of the Mercantile Exchange. I was one of the guys there that um, changed it from a non-for-profit to a for-profit back in the 90s. We had some huge political battles, weren't spending a lot on technology, turned it from an open outcry exchange to the electronic exchange that you see today. Um, there's about 10 of us, roughly, maybe 15, that really pulled the levers for that to happen. And when we were in the pits, you always saw a lot of deal flow, right? So I always see stuff come through and um, none of it was good. The check was always 50 or 100 grand or 150. You never knew the terms really. Were you getting stock? What were you doing? Uh, And there was no way to analyze it. So after CME, the internet bubble burst. And then uh, I was doing my MBA at Chicago and Vishal Verma said to me, hey, we should have an angel group and focus on Chicago. And I said, what the hell's an angel group? And, <laughs> and he explained what they did in California and how they got started. And so I said, that is a freaking great idea. And so we did it, started it up. And I really enjoy it for a lot of different reasons. One is, um, you know, you can talk about making a difference in your community. So I've invested personally in about 18 or 19 different startups. It creates jobs when they're successful, when they fail, they fail. But it adds to the dynamic and diversity of the Chicago ecosystem. Uh, Hyde Park has done 30 deals. I'm sure we'll do more. But personally, I get a lot out of it because I like to work with people. Trading, pit trading was a people business. It wasn't just about the money. I think people don't realize how much of a people business it was. Um, There's a lot of similarities, or I shouldn't say similarities, parallels between what it takes to be a good pit trader and what it takes to be a good angel investor or venture capitalist. Interesting. So I really like that. I like working with small startups. I like solving problems for them, creating connections for them, creating opportunities for them. It's fun. Um, it's fun even when they fail. It's painful when they fail because, you know, every startup that you invest in, you think could be a billion-dollar startup, basically. You think that it's got a great idea and great people working for it. So you hate to see them when they die, but they do die. And I think what I learned from the pits was, you know, you had to have risk tolerance and measure risk-reward and know a lot about that inherently. And it's a gut call at the end of the day when you write that check to a startup. And um, a lot of people want to 
systematize it. They want to figure out all these data, data, data. And it makes it difficult for them to pull the trigger. And they're also, they have a lot of fear of failure. I think Midwesterners generally have a fear of failure. They, they look at it as a black mark. We've said this over and over and over again. I think though, they really do. And, and you talk to people and they're like, oh no, I don't want to do that. But, you know, they're willing to what I call lever up a buggy whip factory by going to an existing business and doing a private equity deal mm-hmm. and loading it up with a lot of debt and trying to smooth out operations that way. It's a totally different mentality than VC. Henry Ford would have never got anything done, you know. I mean, actually, how many people told him no? They went and they levered up the buggy whip factory. Right? Yeah, right. So. so first deal was done in what year? 2007 was our first deal. It was a deal called Shuffle Tech. Um, one of our founders became the CEO, looked like a good deal. It was the card craze. Uh, didn't work out. My first deal was Tallgrass Beef, which is Bill Curtis's company. It's the only deal I ever did on the floor of the Mercantile Exchange. He raised the initial seed capital in the cattle and hog pits. Wow. And pork belly pits there. Um, Harvey Paffenroth got me in that deal. And, and so that was my first deal. My personal first deal was in 2005. Unbelievable the way that people get into venture. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. always a nice story. Yeah. Okay, cool. So today the topic is valuation. Uh-huh. We're going to jump right in. So first question, Jeff, why is valuation and price per share a critical deal term for investors to be well-informed about? Well, it's not only for investors. I think it's for entrepreneurs too. Everybody needs to know it. And I think sometimes from both an investor perspective and an entrepreneur perspective, rather than think about straight numbers and straight value, they need to think about strategy. And corporate finance is a strategy. It's no different than marketing. It's no different than operations. It's no different than anything else, especially in a startup. So if you're a startup, first of all, the data would tell you 66,000 angel-funded companies in 2012, uh, about $20 billion put to work. The median pre-money was $2.5 million. The median raise was 600000 So the median post was three point one, right? So that's kind of a rough guideline, really rough. Um, seed stage. Seed stage. Got it. Seed stage. And so what you have to understand is as you go through the corporate finance process of building your company, you need to build momentum into every single round. So every round needs to be a little bit higher than the last. From the entrepreneur's perspective, at every single round of financing, they give up between 15 and 25% of equity in their firm. So in the very beginning, when it's two guys in a garage, they own 100%. At the end, when they exit, they own roughly about 15%. If you build a billion-dollar company, if you're arguing in the very beginning over a 3 or $5 million pre-money, you're throwing nickels around like manhole covers because unless you get the money, you can't build the company. From the investor's perspective, if they value a company too high and it doesn't hit, the next round is a flat round or down round, which is no good for the investor because then it makes it tougher to raise follow-on capital. So even if you have a good idea that's struggling, that could be a billion-dollar company, uh, Airbnb is one that I could think of off the bat. It's tougher to raise that next round of capital. So there was a company here in Chicago back when we started Hyde Park Angels that presented to us called uh, Liquid Talk. And they were the hottest company going, and they were way overvalued, didn't hit their targets. The next time that they needed to raise capital was a down round, and it scared investors away. And so I like to have a heart-to-heart with the people that I invest in to talk about corporate finance as a strategy and that, you know, yeah, you feel like you're worth X, but let's look at it in terms of the long-term play here and the fact that I want you to be worth 
what you think you're worth at the end, not what you're th- worth at the beginning. And I think that's a distinction that you have to make. And and smart entrepreneurs understand it. I think if you if you interviewed people like Sean Carpenter from YCharts who raised money at the height of the financial crisis when everybody was sitting on their wallets, he would give you a, a great perspective. I think Sean understands corporate finance from the entrepreneur's perspective as well as anybody. I think Mark Halpin from Kapow Events does. And so there's entrepreneurs here that can get it. And I think they need to talk to other entrepreneurs about what it means. And at the same time, I think venture capitalists and angels need to be very transparent about, you know, what they're willing to invest in and at what price they're willing to invest and um, how they're willing to invest. So, you know, there's all these different ways, right? You see uncapped convertible notes, convertible notes, straight equity. Neil Kane has a thing called uh, convertible equity. I mean, so there's all kinds of permutations. At the end of the day, you're going to get the money in, you're going to have a value and you have to execute. So that doesn't change. So you touched on a few key terms in there, and I want to drill into those. Okay. Um, let's assume I'm an investor. I've been investing in the public stock markets, mm-hmm. as well as a number of other things. Right. Brand new to angel investing. Mm-hmm. You talked about up rounds and down rounds. Mm-hmm. Can you fill us in on what those are? Well, so in the stock market, you have totally transparent market, basically. Um, there's a price. You can see everything, right? You can see the financial statements. And angel investing is not so. It's not transparent at all. There are financial statements, but, you know, there's projections. They're worth about what the Excel spreadsheet is worth. So um, an up round is, for instance, your seed investment. Let's say you do it at a $3 million valuation post money. I'm just making this up. They raised, you know, half a million at three. So your next round, let's say, is 16 months from now. If that round is higher, so let's say it's a $10 million round and they raise $2 million, at 10, give away 20%, right? So $12 million post. The value of your shares at the $3 million post has increased, but it hasn't increased by 4x because there's a little bit of dilution, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to do the math as you go forward and the math can get, it's cut and dried, but it can get messy because there's all these different things that happen. So uh, for example, if, if I'm a seed investor, Right now, people like to do convertible debt notes with a discount, which means I'm investing in a debt instrument that converts to equity upon a Series A valuation at some specified discount with some specified interest rate on it. And then you figure in the interest rate and the discount to your stock price. And that's the benefit you get for taking the risk as an early investor. You don't get that in the stock market, right? I think for the casual investor that's interested in angel investing, let's say I'm a high net worth individual, right? And I'm willing to commit, you know, 1% of my portfolio or 2% of my my portfolio to it. Either you have to be active and really go out and learn the stuff. And there's plenty of places online to learn it. Um, Fred Wilson's blog, AVC had uh, MBA Mondays that talks about it. Brad Feld has a whole blog series on term sheets and all kinds of information out there. Um, So it's easy to get at, but you have to be active. You can't be passive. If you don't want to be active and just want to be sort of passive, you're better off joining a syndicate or putting your money in a fund and giving up the fees because those people are experts at it. So you already talked about pre and post money. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to illustrate a simple example, if a company is raising at a $5 million valuation Mm -hmm. and they're raising a million bucks, the pre-money would be $5, five million, right? And the post-money would be six million. That's right. Okay. So the company's worth six million, and that's where you carry it on your books. So between financing rounds, uh, limited partners of venture capital funds want, kind of want to know how, how's everybody doing, right? Yep. 
Well, if there's not been a financing round, the only way to value that company is at $6 million. Even if it, let's say it's blowout, right? Let's say it's, you've got Facebook or Uber or something on your hands and you're at six and the next round is going to be at a hundred. You can't value it at a hundred, but you can tell your LPs, Hey, here's what's going on. This company's doing really well. We're going to go out for financing. We think it could be here, but we don't know. But as far as like the mark on your books, it's a $6 million mark. Jeff, what does the phrase fully diluted mean, and how does it relate to valuation and the employee option pool? So fully diluted means all the shares of stock, right? So it includes the option pool. It includes all the discounts. It includes everything. It's no different than fully diluted earnings per share, right? It's the same same principle. And uh, regarding warrants, mm-hmm. uh, warrants are often built into deals. Yes, Um, Why are they sometimes referred to, well, let's start out with what are warrants and why are they sometimes referred to as stock options? Because they are an option. So there's a specified strike price on the warrant. And when it gets exercised, it gets exercised at that price. And that is dilutive to the cap table, but it's a way to incentivize certain behavior, right? Can you walk us through an example of how a warrant would play out? I invested in a company. I'm not going to name the name. And... We invested in the first round at a valuation. We were given warrants, or actually we were given options that expired a year later, 12 months from the date of the first investment, to invest at the original valuation, but half as much. So if you put $10 in at point A, at point B, you could invest five, but at point A valuation. So that was an example that was dilutive to the cap table, but the entrepreneur wanted it because saved him a lot of time in getting money, right? Or her. So I got extra juice. It incentivized me to put more money in earlier if I really wanted to take a chance on the company because I knew that I could put more money in later if it was successful. But it's risk, right? I think warrants are great for employee contracts. And sometimes, um, you know, you use them in different situations. So to get strategics in, maybe you give them some warrants. It's a way to incentivize employees to work harder. Uh, warrants are really no different than options. Would a founder use warrants to, let's say, maintain a higher valuation during the negotiation of terms? Or are they using them to sort of have the opportunity to get more money at a later time? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. I've never I've never been confronted with that. I, I, see, I see the use. I, I believe in option pools for employees because I think employees that are equity-driven work harder for the company than just based on a salary. And so I think that founders need to utilize options and warrants to attract the best employees, number one, because finding talent is really hard, and to incentivize them to propel the company forward. Um, Usually, you know, they're priced out of the money, right? So... There's all this stuff in the news about backdating options where they're sort of giving corporate executives kind of a free free ride. But in the venture world, they're always sort of forward-looking. So if, if I get options at $5 million, you know, they don't vest until a certain time period and at a certain valuation. So if the company doesn't hit that valuation, they're worthless. So I get a little bit of risk, too. What are some of the main factors that may impact valuation? Well, the biggest one is probably uh, market size, which is why every entrepreneur in their pitch deck says that they have a billion-dollar opportunity, right? Yeah. So um, 
Market size is one. How they're disrupting the environment is another one. So if it's iterative, and I, I'm not picking on Quicken, but Quicken was iterative. It wasn't groundbreaking, right? It took paper books and put them into a floppy disk so you could have them on a computer. Great company, became into it, right? Huge valuation, grew really fast. It was the 80s, you know? It was a different time. Today, you need companies that are really disruptive in some ways to get that big valuation. And a lot of times, they create markets that weren't there. They get rid of middlemen. And, and I think one of the great things about the internet is it gets rid of brokers and middlemen that don't add a lot of value, and it puts customers closer to end users. Boom. And that has a lot of effects. Uh, if you look at a company like Uber, at the very beginning, it was just, you know, getting a black car, right? Allowing mo a mass of people to get it. But if you read B Bill Gurley's post on Uber the other day and you read about where it could go, it's disruptive to society um, and the way we live. So could it be worth $200 billion? Yeah, it could be worth $200 billion. People on CNBC this morning said that's nuts. They think $16 billion's nuts, but, you know, those guys are accountants. They're not venture capitalists company I'm invested in, NextSpace, is just simply co-working. It's disrupting the commercial real estate market. But if you think about the things that can go on in a NextSpace and they're thinking about them, it's highly disruptive to the way we work. It's highly disruptive to education. It's highly disruptive to lots of different things um, in society. And if they're successful at executing, they could be a multi-billion dollar company. So that impacts it. If you've done it before, right? And what kind of success you had. So great company here in Chicago. They're just starting out. They've been going at it for like 18 months. It's called juvadhr.com. And what they are is performance reviews right now for small and medium-sized businesses. Integrates with QuickBooks in 10 minutes. I mean, or touch of a button. You can get them up and running in 10 minutes. And really cool company, right? Well, Susan and Pete have both built companies before and exited. So you give them higher marks because they've been through the wars. You know, if Jack Dorsey came to me and said, hey, I got an idea for a company, he's going to get a higher valuation than somebody that's never done it before. I think if you are an older entrepreneur with a lot of DNA in the vertical that you're attacking with a really good network, you get a higher mark than somebody that just comes in off the street with the same idea. But that being said, I don't think that the mark is going to be significantly higher. It's just it feels like the risk is a little less. So because the risk is a little less, you're going to give them a little bit better valuation. I think if, if you look at startup companies, the average in the Midwest pre-money is somewhere between three and five million. And that's, you know, it's up slightly, but not significantly higher. We don't have as much competition here. And we have other things that don't happen here. We don't have equa higher here like they do on the coasts. So that changes um, valuation here. And there's also not as much money here. So valuations are smaller. Um, the advent of online fundraising and crowdfunding and stuff like that have helped the entrepreneur and that they're getting a little bump up in valuation that they probably wouldn't get before. So when I first started Hyde Park Angels, you know, we probably said two to four and now we're three to five. So meh, it's not that big a deal. So when we think about a lot of the factors that are impacting valuation, some of them come off as qualitative, mm -hmm. like what stage are you at? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How much competition for capital? What is the venture capitalist's appetite or, mm -hmm. or angel group's appetite for funding? Mm -hmm. Do they have a ceiling? 
What are some of the quantitative factors? And uh, can you give us a couple examples of how a venture investor may calculate or determine evaluation? I'll try because at the end, it's gut feel. So you're going to look at comparables. Odds are you're not the only game in town. So you're going to look at other deals that are similar. At an early seed stage, you bet on ideas, but you also, you bet more on the team. You bet on the people. And so two companies I'm not invested in either one, okay? Um, Parkwiz and Spot Hero competing for the same space. If I was going to invest in either one, I'm going to look at the idea and I'm going to look at the team and grade it out on that, right? Because it's the same exact space. Um, and I don't know what their valuations are today. I have no idea about anything. I'm not invested. So I think you have to look at risk reward, especially. So that's a tough one, though. It takes a lot of sort of looking at data, looking at history, and then trying to take that and project it forward into the unknown. So you're talking about probability, right? So how likely is it that this is going to happen? There was a guy, darn it, I, can't, I linked to his blog post and I cannot remember it. And it talks about angel investing and valuation. It was, it was one of the best things I've ever read. And he talked about how he invested in, he invests in ad tech. And he calculated with this one company, there was a 10% chance the government would change regulations and put the company out of business. So he felt like the investment was okay because he thought it was only a 10% chance. Other people may have calculated that differently. Sure. So it's purely, you know, I think that's the thing about venture is it's very dependent on who's doing the analysis. And so two venture firms can look at the same firm and come up with totally different analysis and totally different valuations. So um, it's very random that way. It's not like private equity where you can go and you can do a 10-year cash flow and discount it back by some rate and play with it and mess with the numbers to come up with some sort of inherent value. It's, uh, it's a lot of conjecture and projection. And, and at the end, you got to trust your gut. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So whether it be your venture fund or with the angel group, Mm -hmm. Hyde Park, uh, you get an entrepreneur in, Mm -hmm. great idea, Mm -hmm. fantastic team with a track record. Yeah. 
valuation is a little high. Higher. Hi- Higher than what you would expect, let's say. Yeah. Uh, how do you approach the negotiation process? Oh, um, I would just be honest with them. I, I think transparency is the best. Just being straight. Uh, I was a trader. My word was my bond. You know, I trade a hundred billion dollars worth of euro dollars at a crack. I trade whatever, and even if it was a loser, I don't up to him. And I think you have to be straight that way, and just tell them exactly sort of what you're thinking. I, I, I mean, in the negotiation process, there's certain things that you you don't hide them, but you know, I remember talking to this one entrepreneur. And he, she came in and said, my company's six million. And I said, okay. And we kept talking, built a relationship. And as he started to talk to other people, the valuation came down and it got into a range where I felt really comfortable. And so I think that's what you have to do. And I think as a VC or an angel, the valuation discussion is indicative of how the relationship will go going forward. It's a great discussion to have. It puts a little stress on everybody. So you can start to see how they perform under stress because they're going to be under stress. And I think it lets you know how they react to sort of you giving them adverse information that they don't want, right? And that happens. So when you're sitting on a board, everything's not always hunky-dory. So you learn a lot about the entrepreneur in that valuation process, how what we call coachable they are and how they respond. I've had some people come to me and say, this is worth $23 million, you know, some crazy valuation. I'm just like, you know what? I'm just not interested. I've had some where you're talking, you're talking, it's a great idea, everything feels right, and you just can't come to terms, so you have to be prepared to walk away. And so you walk away. If you if you enter into a negotiation where you're going to write a check, you're going to lose. That's the wrong word. You're going to make a bad deal is the right way to say it. It's not, it should be a win-win negotiation for you and the entrepreneur. So after you come out of it, you both feel good and you go. Jason Helzer from, he was with OCA, just stepped down, said a really interesting thing about convertible debt because so many people use convertible debt now is the only reason I'm pointing this out is if it's a convertible debt with a 20% discount and a $5 million cap, let's say, because that's a lot of the ones we see. Aren't I, as an investor, pulling for you to f*** up so I can get a lower valuation? I mean, sort of, right? It's a really interesting point. It's counterintuitive. Yeah, it's totally counterintuitive, but he's right. And so it's better to just do a straight Series A and value the company than it is convertible debt. Interesting, because if they do really well, then you're leaving money on the table. And if they do poorly, then you're getting a better better valuation at their next raise. Right. Interesting. You know, sometimes these folks that approach you with a $20 million valuation at the seed stage, Mm -hmm. you just have to think how thorough of a founder are you if you can't (laughs) even do, you know, a couple blog post readings and and realize that your valuation is an order of magnitude. You know what? There's a greater fool theory in real estate and it works in venture too. I know people that have deals that I haven't done. Um, Yeah. I had one guy talk to me once and he said, I said, you know, sounds really interesting. What's the value? And he said, $23 million. And I said, Really? I said, what'd you do your last round at? He said, 50 million. I said, well, how do those investors feel? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, le- legit. It's, it's totally serious. So it's, a, I think it's a great discussion because valuation encompasses, it winds up encompassing a lot of things. So you can talk about markets, strategy, all kinds of things. Um, and you get to know the person a lot better. So if you do love the idea, you love the team, mm-hmm. huge market, mm-hmm. will you pay a premium? Yeah. I think you will, especially if there's competition. Uh, valuation also depends on you. You touched on it earlier, Nick, uh, the stage. So if you're seed stage and you have 
you know, no customers and it's just an idea, you're not going to get a big valuation. Um, it's probably smart not even to raise money. If you have some customers and you're going, then from the investor point of view, you're going to interview those customers and talk to them and try to discern where this can really go. You, you're not going to be able to predict it, but at least you can sort of give yourself a good feel in within one vertical. So, for instance, when Twitter started, it was a 140-character microblog. Basically, they unbundled Facebook. They took the Facebook status update line and turned it into a thing, right? Who knew that Twitter could have the power to throw a dictator out of office? Who knew that Twitter could be a communication device for terrorists? Who knew that Twitter could do what it does, right? I guarantee no investor at the table at the beginning knew. So you never know where these things are going to go. Brad Feld had a post the other day on who can pick a billion-dollar company because that's the rage right now in, in startup circles is, how, you know, how, how do you pick them? And you really can't. The truth is that you just can't. There's no formula for saying this is going to be a billion-dollar company. You're sort of lucky, um, and it comes down to the people and how they execute and the stones they uncover and the new markets that they unearth. So we've kind of talked around this, mm -hmm. but what would be the adverse impact for a founder of raising at too high a valuation? So the adverse impact is you get the money in, but now, and I hate to use this analogy because I'm on the board of the National World War II Museum, but when you hit the beach, it's like D-Day and all hell breaks loose and nothing goes as planned. That burns through your working capital. So that's why people will tell you to raise 12 to 18 months, lean towards 18 months, because it'll probably be burned up in 12 to 14 months, right? Hmm. And if you're out raising capital, you can't work on your business. If you raise it too high you're going to have to hit a different set of milestones and to raise the next round at a higher valuation. So if I go lower, my investors are more likely to be patient and reinvest and kind of carry me through that sort of, let's call it, really nailing down my product market fit time. A company that I'm invested in, Uico, for example, we invested in 2007, 2008. It's a touchscreen company. And um, nobody knew what the hell their product was. I mean, they had such revolutionary technology at the outset, at the very outset, that when they walked into customers to talk to them, a customer looked at them and said, I don't even know what to do with this. It wasn't until the iPhone and tablets came out with touchscreen that people understood what UICO was all about. And now they're getting huge traction. They're in Kohler steam showers. If you walk into McDonald's, you know, the smoothie machine is their touchscreen. But they needed money. So we were able to do a few rounds with them before they went out to the VC world. Now they've got a couple of VCs that have invested in them. And, you know, they've got product market fit and they're getting great traction and they're competing and winning deals. Um, had they come out at too high of a valuation, I'm not sure they would have raised the next round of capital and they would have died. And that's the risky run. Yeah, there's a company in town that has great traction, great growth, mm -hmm. but they raised their last round at eight and he can't raise at double that now. So he can't get the money and he doesn't want to do a down round, of course. Um, or so and maybe people won't even give him a flat round. And then what about your original investors? So if I'm an investor at eight and now I'm looking at investing at six and I know the history, I'm not as likely to whip out my checkbook and go, yeah. And, and you know, there's guys... <laughs> out there that specialize in finding those companies, grabbing a shitload of equity. So what happens then? Guy doesn't want to die. So he was at eight. Now, let's say he can't raise until he gets down to four, right? Mm -hmm. 
if there's a there's good investors out there that will find that company and say, you know what, I'll I'll write a check at four, but I'm going to take a boatload of equity. I'm going to take all this stuff because they can't get the money in and they're desperate. So then they wind up not owning as much of the company at the end as they would have, and the investor makes all the money. And the way I see it is it's a partnership where they buy a couple desert islands and the Bahamas and, you know, they can build a big mansion. And and I just want to have a nice, comfortable lifestyle out of it. So I, I see it as a partnership, not a tug of war and not a adversarial relationship. That is the end of part one on valuation from my interview with Jeff Carter. Part two will be coming out next week. In the meantime, if you'd like to connect with Jeff, on Twitter, he is at Points and Figures, and he also has an excellent blog. It's pointsandfigures.com. All right, let's review a few of the key takeaways. Number one, in every round, an entrepreneur will give up between 15 to 25% equity. At the beginning of a startup's life, in the garage, they always own 100%. But at the end, when they exit, often founders will own about 15%. This is the standard and should not be a surprise to the entrepreneur. If a founder is unwilling to offer the standard amount of equity and or an investor prices a company too high during an early round, it becomes very difficult to raise subsequent rounds, especially if it's a down round or a flat round. Uh, this is where Jeff mentioned Airbnb. It could be a brilliant idea in a billion-dollar market. But an entrepreneur's ability to continue to fundraise depends heavily on the round not being priced too high. Okay, key takeaway number two, the elements that impact valuation positively. Uh, Jeff mentioned a few, including number one, market size. How big is the market that the startup is going after? Number two is disruption. So how disruptive is it? Is it creating new markets? Is it removing middlemen that create no value? Number three was experience. Has the entrepreneur done it before and exited? Does the entrepreneur have a lot of experience in the target market? And the final one was risk. Ultimately, if the risk is a little less, you're going to give them a better valuation. Okay, and finally, the third takeaway is about honesty and transparency. When Jeff sees a valuation that isn't realistic, he's straightforward and shows them the data. The discussion can be uncomfortable and adversarial, but it's also indicative of how the relationship is going to go over the life of the investment. All right, let's finish up with a tip of the week. The tip for this week, of course, is to know your valuation. Venture investors will often say that Excel spreadsheet models and discounted cash flows are worth less than the paper they're printed on. Many entrepreneurs will present a pro forma showing a billion dollar plus market and aggressive revenues to capture a percentage of that market. While it's good for the founder to go through the financial exercise, the top-line numbers are not very meaningful for seed-stage companies. But startups still need to be valued, and a good place to start is by looking at the landscape of seed-stage angel deals in the recent past. Here are the valuation numbers according to two reputable sources, starting with the source that Jeff Carter cited, the Halo Report. According to the 2013 Halo Report, a joint effort by the Angel Resource Institute, Silicon Valley Bank, and CB Insights, the median valuation was $2.5 million. The median angel round size was $600K. And so the median equity amount was 24%. Uh, the Center for Venture Research in 2012 did a similar exercise. Their findings were that the average valuation was $2.7 million, the average deal size was 342k and the average equity amount was 12.7%. 
After reviewing the standard round sizes and valuations for context, the next logical step is to analyze the common methods for estimating valuation. Uh, there are numerous ways to do this, but four of the more common methods include, number one, the venture capital method, number two, the Dave Burkus method, number three, the scorecard method, and number four, the risk factor summation method. Don't worry, I will include links in the show notes to each of these methods, if you'd like to apply them for yourself. Uh, but to provide a brief intro into each, we'll start with the venture capital method. Uh, it was created by Bill Salman of Harvard Business School, um, and it's more of a VC-focused approach than an angel approach. Uh, but it's still a popular method for investors in which one inputs an estimate of the exit price and ROI for the investors in order to arrive at a valuation. All right, the second method is the Dave Burkus method. Of course, it was developed by Dave Burkus of Tech Coast Angels, great knowledge resource in the field. Uh, this method looks at five major equally weighted criteria, including team idea and prototype, and then allows one to assign progress for each, after which a simple formula allows you to add up the numbers to arrive at evaluation. The next method is called the scorecard method. This was created by Bill Payne of the Frontier Angel Fund. Uh, in the near future, we will have an episode of the Full Ratchet release where I am interviewing Bill Payne, uh, just a great resource in the industry. Okay, this method includes seven characteristics that can be scored. It also allows for adjusting valuation based on geographic region and vertical. The final method is the risk factor summation method. Uh, this was created by Ohio Tech Angels. Naturally, this approach allows one to score 12 factors for their perceived risk. It considers a broader range of criteria, equally weighted, than some of the other methods and also adjusts for vertical and location. Valuation is not an exact science, but knowing the averages and using these methods or an average of their results can help in approximating price. Uh, when one encounters other angel investors or startup founders that are an order of magnitude off of these averages, judgment is often called into question. Pricing a fundraise appropriately has tremendous impact. For the investor, the difference between a $2 million valuation and a $4 million valuation can result in a 2x better cash-on-cash -cash return and a significantly higher IRR for the portfolio of investments. For the founder, pricing too low can result in giving away too much equity, while pricing too high can lead to the Series A crunch. Uh, if you're not familiar with uh, the Series A crunch, in short, it's the inability of founders to raise a subsequent Series A round, largely because the valuation at the seed stage was overinflated. This is a growing issue, and unfortunately, it leads to the death of many startups. Remember that the goal for investors is to receive a healthy return, and for the startup to have the opportunity to realize that return. The next time you find yourself debating the price of a fundraise, don't ask yourself how much you can get. Ask yourself what is appropriate. You can find show notes and links on the site at fullratchet.net. You can also sign up for the newsletter there or by emailing newsletter at fullratchet.net. Give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at the full ratchet, or I'd really appreciate a review on iTunes if you have a moment. All right. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening.